Podcastle, episode number 68, for September 1st, 2009. A Heretic by Degrees, by Marie Brennan. Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. It seems like there's always someone claiming the end is near. We'd be here all day if I listed the various religious groups whose leaders have predicted the end and convinced their followers to sell everything and wait for the big finale. They've every one of them been disappointed. Not counting your various, and I do mean various, interpretations of the book of Revelation, and how current events might or might not be predicted by its text, the current favorite end-of-the-world scenario is the one that claims that the world will end on December 21st, 2010, or maybe December 23rd. Why? Because the Mayan calendar will reset itself that day. See, the ancient Mayans, like other Mesoamerican civilizations, believed that creation was a cyclical thing. Our world was actually Earthmark 4. Versions 1, 2, and 3 were created and then destroyed and replaced by the next world. The Mayan calendar is actually really interesting. Or should I say, Mayan calendars. There are three. The first one, sometimes called the Tzolkin, is 13 numbered days with 20 different names. The two cycles, the 13 numbers and the 20 names, takes 260 days to come back around to the first one. It's still used today in some communities in Guatemala for divination and for timing religious observances. Then there's the Hob, 18 months of 20 days each, plus 5 ill-omened extra days. That adds up to 365 days. For casual use, most pre-Columbian Mayans would have used dates based on these two calendars. Line them both up, and they circle around for 52 years before coming back to where they started. But for historical monuments, carvings commemorating important events in a king's reign, say, the Mayans used the Long Count. The Long Count starts on the date of creation, August 11th, or maybe 13th, 3114 BCE, which in Long Count notation is 00000, which is to say... Zero Baktun, Zero Katun, Zero Tun, Zero Winal, Zero Kin. To save time, I'll just say that a Baktun is just short of 400 years. There's some evidence that the long count would reset itself to zero in the event of a new creation, and some evidence that Mayans believed the last date of the world before this one was 13 Baktun, Zero Katun, Zero Tun, Zero Winal, Zero Kin. And so the theory goes, when we reach that date, December 21st of 2010, this world will be destroyed and a new one will take its place. Ancient Mesoamerican civilizations obviously had a sophisticated calendrical system, and there's lots of evidence that they made careful and accurate astronomical observations. But that's hardly surprising. Lots of other civilizations have done the same. And I'm sure any Mayans who would be, or are, still using the long count today would consider December 21st next year to be a very special date. But it's not really any reason to predict cataclysmic events, any more than our calendar reaching 2000 was. I'm pretty sure we'll all wake up on December 22nd, or 24th, of 2010, and find the world pretty much as it was the day before. Today's story is A Heretic by Degrees by Marie Brennan. She's a former graduate student in anthropology and folklore who has misapplied her degrees to her Onyx Court series of London-based historical fantasy novels. You can find out more at www.swantower.com. It's read by Paul Tevis of podcasts Have Games, Will Travel and The Voice of the Revolution.
A Heretic by Degrees by Marie Brennan The king was dying, and nothing in the world could save him. The counselor Paramount said, Then we must look outside the world for help. The suggestion was heretical and treasonous to boot. Two years before, the king had established by sacred decree that there was only one world and that nothing lay beyond its bounds. Anything seen there was a delusion, a final torment sent to test the faithful before their eternal salvation. And for two years, his counselors and subjects had respected his word. Now they faced a choice. Disobey the king, or lose him. Commit treason, or let him die, and with him the last remnant of the sacred royal line. The counselor Paramount's statement met with a lengthy, embarrassed, indecisive silence. By the standards of his predecessors, Quares was new to the position of Counselor Paramount. He had been in service for a mere two years. The man who had served before him had gone into the spaces outside the world, and only his right arm and half of his head had come back. Thus the decree, and thus the need for a new Counselor Paramount. One might expect from this that Quares would be the last man to suggest that something might exist outside the world, much less that help might exist in those places. But he was a thoughtful man, and moreover, one who cared for his king. Also, he knew that his fellow counselors were a weak-willed lot, who'd consider and discuss and debate and do everything in their power to avoid making a decision, for whoever brought matters to such a point could subsequently be blamed for it. From out of the rustling of ceremonial robes and an uncomfortable creaking of stools came one timid, anonymous voice. But we wouldn't know where to start. Their lack of spines served Quarus's purpose, for it meant they couldn't argue with him. He smiled down at them all, hands arranged in the gesture of serene confidence. Do you really believe all of his holiness's subjects have obeyed that decree? The counselors would have gone traipsing about the capital in a vermilion-robed herd, looking for criminals who had gone outside the world, had Quarus not stopped them. They'd been chosen based on lineal tradition and priestly oracular signs, not espionage capabilities. No one outside the palace knew the king was dying, and Quarus wanted to keep it that way. Finding the help they needed took money they did not have, and time, which was even more precious. But their investment was finally rewarded when the Holy Royal Guard brought a man to Quarus's chambers on the right sort of charge of treason and heresy. "'You got no proof,' were the first words out of the man's mouth when the guard shoved him to his knees. Quares regarded the man for a careful moment. His stocky shoulders and barrel chest made him appear nearly as wide as he was tall, too much of one dimension and not enough of the other. By the ancient principles of harmonious bodily proportion that governed palace life, the man was entirely displeasing, and moreover the length of his nose indicated an untrustworthy nature. But the palace inhabitants, harmonious of build though they might be, did not have the expertise he needed. Quares indicated with a flick of his fingers that the guards should leave. When the two of them were alone in the room, he said, You have been brought here for a purpose. I swear beneath the foot of the agate god that if you help us, your crimes will be forgiven in the eyes of both gods and men. The man's dull face lit up slowly at his words. But, Quares added before the man could speak, this matter is one of utmost security. Therefore I also swear beneath the foot of the agate god that if you betray even the tiniest part of this matter to anyone in the world, 
Your blood will boil in your veins, your eyes will roast in their sockets, and your skin will crisp from your flesh, your flesh from your bones, until nothing remains of you but a pile of ash, soon scattered by the wind. Do you understand me? After a frozen moment of horror, the man swallowed convulsively and nodded. Very well, Chorus said. His own words left a bitter taste in his mouth. Not because he regretted the necessity of threats. He would burn a hundred men to ash if it would save the king. No, the bitterness came because it would not save the king. He could kill, but he could not heal. He had to hope that someone else could. Chorus stood before the man, clasping his hands in the gesture of sorrowful resolution. You have been outside the world. We have need of your experience. It is said that many wonders exist in the places we do not speak of. He has an ability to heal the sick and dying among those wonders. It was remarkable, Koras reflected some time later, how quickly one adjusted to strangeness when there was need. Since becoming Counselor Paramount, he had not once been within three paces of anyone so common and vulgar as Haint, the criminal he had recruited. But now they stood side by side at a map table, studying the image and speaking heresy. Haint's blunt finger stabbed down at a town. That ain't there anymore. Nor that. Nor that. And the river's dried up, with the spring gone. With one swoop, his unmanicured nail denied the existence of an entire swath of the world. Worse than Quoras had realized, then. There had been a second decree, not long after his ascension to the Paramountcy, declaring that all of the towns, rivers, fields, and other portions of the world were where they had always been. Obedient to the king's sacred word, everyone had disregarded the lack of communication with a number of towns in the east, the disappearance of all those who had lived there. But what Haint was describing went well beyond the vanished areas Chorus knew had provoked the decree. So the rumors were true. The world, what remained of it after the judgment of the gods had begun, was continuing to fade. But that was not Chorus's true concern. Beyond that... Beyond that, Haint said, there are two places. Up here. He tapped the northern edge of the disputed area. You don't want to go there. Creatures there look like six-armed wolves. Eat anybody comes near them. That's what happened to the guy before you. Lucky for us, they don't much want to leave their home. But to the southeast, there we might have luck. Chorus stared at the southern portion of the map the lines and letters melting away in his mind as the places they marked had melted, leaving a blank, unknown space. What lies to the southeast? Haint grinned at him, showing crooked teeth. Another world. The arms of the chair were tangling the sleeves of even the relatively plain robes Quoras had worn to the meeting, and the seat was too high for him to sit comfortably. He was already vexed by his inability to understand the choppy clicks that passed for language in this place. Little things, like awkward furniture, frayed his temper still further. But he could not trust Haint to handle this without supervision. And so here he was, committing an unthinkable crime. Not just speaking of a place his king had told him didn't exist, but going there in person. He had seen a disturbing number of his countrymen walking the tunnels that passed for streets in this... He was not yet comfortable with terming it a world. Yet he did not know what else to call this place. 
It wasn't a delusion, whatever the king's decree had said. He knew it the minute he stepped over the border and found himself beneath a punishing trio of sons that made the need for underground dwelling immediately apparent. And that was before he met any of the impossibly slender people who inhabited it, as unlike the stocky bodies of Quores's people as dandelion fluff was to a log. Haint appeared to be arguing with his interlocutor, though given the sharp edges of the language, it was hard to tell disagreement from friendly speech. Certainly there was much back and forth, with hand-waving on Haint's part, and rippling shrugs that Koras thought might be the equivalent on the other fellow's part. Finally, Haint turned to Koras and sighed. Right. It's going to be more complicated than that. The words produced a peculiar mixture of hope and dread in Koras's heart. What do you mean? They can't heal anybody, Haint said. In fact, they don't believe in healing anybody. If you get sick or hurt, then you've offended... Spit me, I don't even know what he said you've offended. Some kind of god, I guess. And he says none of the worlds they border on can do anything more than medicine. Only he calls it blasphemy juice. Which is pretty funny, I thought. <laughs> he caught Chorus's expression and hurried onward. But that doesn't mean we're at a wall. See, it goes way past here, right? There's our world, and then there's this place. And the place of the wolf things north of here. Only I guess it's west for them. That's where their sun's set anyway. I don't know, I'm still not great with their language. But they've got other worlds on their borders. And those places border other places too. Despite his resolution to do whatever he must to save the king, Chorus was deeply uncomfortable with this kind of talk. Please come to your point if you have one. Haint took a deep breath. My point is, they say there's a guy here who can help. Not by healing, but by taking us to somebody who can. He's a guide. Knows a bunch of different worlds. If there's any place where somebody can wave their hands and make a dying man get well, he'll know where to find it. And he'll take you there and back. For a price. Already this had gone well beyond what Chorus had in mind when he first suggested looking outside the world for help. But could he turn back now? Salvation for the king might lie just a few steps further over the edge. Find me this man, he said. The man insisted, via intermediaries, on meeting them somewhere else. Haint went with Chorus, but he no longer led the way. His heretical crimes had only extended to the tunnel place, and one trip, brief and ill-advised, to the place of the wolf people. They had a new guide for this journey, a man of the tunnel place who knew the realms beyond. Together, the three of them sailed, with guards, across a small and inexplicable stretch of sea, whose sky of shifting colors marked it as yet another place. Another world, though Chorus's mind still shied from the term. The guards were there to stab over the boat's edges at things beneath the water's surface, which Chorus chose not to examine too closely. The place beyond that seemed sane by contrast. The people were taller and slimmer than Chorus's own, but not too strange, and the sky had the proper pair of suns, not too bright. The man they met there was quite different. His hair was black like theirs, but he stood a head taller than the people of that place, with skin silvery blue next to their cinnamon. Standing in an open-air pavilion with the willowy dandelion fluff of their guide and guards, 
surrounded by cinnamon-skinned locals, with Haint almost strange in his familiarity, Quares felt disorientation as sharp as pain. He buried his hands in his sleeves, the gesture of reserved wisdom, not that he felt particularly reserved or wise, not that these people could recognize it, and tipped his head politely to the man. One of the locals held out a bowl of pure blue glass to Quares and said something to their guide. The guide translated for Haint. Haint translated for Quares. He wants you to spit in the bowl. Three times. The request was disgusting, but Quares supposed it to be some manner of traditional ritual, and possibly an insult if he refused. So he did as he was bid, struggling to muster enough saliva the third time. His mouth was very dry. The local carried it across to the tall stranger, who likewise spat three times. Again the bolt to Quares, and again the chain of translations. Haint said, Now you drink it. I most certainly will not, Quares snapped. His stomach heaved at the thought. I don't know what quaint local custom this is meant to be, but if they merely think that I will... Long before he got that far in his outraged objection, the stranger was speaking, resulting in a muddied flow as everyone tried to translate for his neighbor and their words swamped Quares under. Haint had to repeat the message several times before it penetrated. It'll make things easier. Shared speech. Oh, just drink it, you tight-arsed palace peacock. And thereupon Haint shoved the bowl at Quares' lips, so that he could not help but get some in his mouth, mid-diatribe. Quares gagged and jerked back, but by then no one was paying attention to him. The local carried the bowl back to the stranger, who drank the remainder without a qualm. There, said the stranger, in perfectly coherent speech. Unpleasant, I'm afraid, but it's convenient. I'll be sad when this place disappears, and I have to go back to learning languages the hard way. Chorus's eyes widened against his will. He'd been trying very hard not to show surprise at the oddities he'd encountered. How... how did you do that? I didn't do it. He did. The stranger pointed at the man with the bowl. Or the bowl did, maybe. I'm not sure how it works. That's why we met here. Magic only works in the world it belongs to. But with some things, once they're done, they're done. You and I will be able to communicate no matter where we are. And since you're from the edge, odds were we'd have to go through at least two translators to talk otherwise. Traveling through peculiar realms, inhabited by people even more peculiar, had been enough of a strange on Quares' mind. This, he felt, was one thing too many. Even though he'd come here in search of wonders, such of a miracle to cure his king, to face, to taste evidence of such wonders, whether he meant to or not, the stranger saved Quares from hysterical, disbelieving laughter that would have destroyed his pretense at sanity and control. Now that we can talk to each other, the guide said, let's talk fees. Haint picked up the bag they had brought with them from home. At the heretic's advice, Chorus had gathered samples of many different things, not all of them valuable. As Haint brought the items out, one by one, the stranger studied them with a curious eye. The emerald he set aside with a disinterested shake of his head, but the fire quartz received an approving murmur. He tasted several of the foods, making a face at the lizard suite, and finally subjected the meshtrin in its cage to an extended study. All right, he said at last. What are you hiring me for? I'll guide you there and back by the safest route I know. That's one service. 
And since you're an edger, with no languages but your own, I'll serve as translator as well. If you want to bargain with the people we go to, I'll interpret for you. Or I can handle it on your behalf. Let me know what you want, and I'll let you know what it'll cost. None of the other counselors were present for Quaris to consult. He had to make the decision unaided. He scrutinized the man's face, wondering if high cheekbones still signified an adaptable nature when an individual with them was from a different reality. I would be obliged if you handled the bargaining, he said at last. No doubt the man would take his own cut of the price, but it was obvious that Corus did not know what counted as valuable trade goods, and he would empty the palace treasury to save the king. The stranger nodded. All right. For the guide work and the translation, fourteen of those stones, he pointed at the fire quartz. For the healing, I'm going to make some bargains along the way. Bring me three breeding sets of that insect in the cage. Pears, or whatever it is they need to reproduce. I know a lady who'll be fascinated to have some. She'll give me shells in trade. Is that acceptable? It was acceptable. It was a quivering relief. The Meshtron was a pest, nothing more. Capturing three breeding trios would be as easy as setting the palace maids to work. It seemed Haint was correct about the odd economics of this place and fourteen fire quartzes was a price he would gladly pay. When Chorus indicated his agreement, the man said something unintelligible to the cinnamon-skinned people standing around, then gestured for Chorus to follow him. Let's sit down and discuss this, then. They settled onto long couches in another pavilion, and servants brought bowls of some liquid the stranger advised Chorus and Haint not to drink. You never know what will poison you, he said. Not everyone can eat and drink the same things. I suggest you bring your own food with you when we go. At last they were relatively alone. The stranger said, Since we're business partners now, I'll introduce myself. My name is Last. I'm from the Shreds, but I do business near the edge now and then. Guide work, translation services, and so on. I've got plenty of experiences all over Driftwood. Mine are the safest hands you could be in. He paused in his speech and gave Koras an appraising look. Does any of that mean a thing to you? Koras wanted to lie. Ignorance was a weakness he dared not reveal. His hesitation betrayed him regardless. I figured, Lass said. Most edgers are like that. Let's start with a geography lesson. He cast about as if looking for something, then caught sight of the carpet. This will do. It's as close to a useful map of driftwood as you'll ever get. The carpet consisted of a set of concentric circles in different shades of blue. Last got up from his seat and crouched at the outermost circle, tapping the pale fibers with one dark lacquered fingernail. This is the edge. Your world is out here. Edge worlds are new to driftwood. They just had their apocalypses. Outside them is mist. He gestured at the floor around the circular rug. I assume you've got that on at least one side of you, since you can't have been here long. Go further in, you find the ring. Now his hand moved inward to a circle of medium blue. No mist touching these places, but they are still pretty big. Further inward of them, there's the shreds. He touched the dark blue circle. There is no clear boundary between the ring and the shreds, 
Depends on how large you think a place has to be to count as a ring world. The shreds are the little remnants. Neighborhoods and ghettos. And in the center, a small spot of black lay at the heart of the carpet. And last looked down at it with an odd expression. The crush. Where it all goes to die. Chorus dodged the stream of heresy rather desperately. Where are we going? Last leaned back against his couch with a blithe disregard for propriety. Or perhaps sitting on the floor was acceptable, where he came from. I know of two places that have healing magic. Well, three, but the Shwishti would have you for dinner if we went there, so we won't. One place is about 45 degrees Wittershins of you. He took a small black stone from a pocket in his trousers and laid it out on the edge of the carpet, then set another one much further inward on the dark blue, some distance around the circle. If the first stone's you, the second one's Alyeng. Our other option's over here. A third stone went on the other side of the black circle from the stone that was Chorus's home. What difference is there between them? The people in Alyeng can cure physical diseases. In Grand Nintar, they can cure pretty much anything. Physical, mental, spiritual, whatever. And Gran Nitar, Chorus said, stumbling over the alien name, is further away. Yes, but that isn't necessarily a problem. We'd have to go near the crush, but contrary to popular belief, it can't actually suck you in. Chorus did not know, and did not want to know, what this crush was. The nature of the king's ailment was unclear. To be safe, he should go to Gran Nitar. But Chorus also did not know how long the king had to live. How much? he asked with trepidation. Would it cost to try healing him in both places? Last looked mildly surprised at his willingness to spend. Not even Haint knew the identity of the sick man, and Chorus was not going to share that information. Do you still have any mines producing iron ore? the guide asked finally. Chorus nodded. Bring a man's weight in iron ingots, then. People always need raw materials, in the shreds. We'll go Wittershins to Alyeng, then on to Granitar if necessary. It won't be much longer of a trip than if we went to Granitar direct. Will that do? It would, and Chorus said so, trying to disguise how pathetically grateful he was to have this man's help. Fetch your patient, then, and meet me back here, Last said. Bring the payment, food, and whatever guards you think you will need. I'll make our arrangements in the meantime. Chorus could not pinpoint the moment at which he accepted that the realms they moved through truly were different worlds, but the cause was clear enough. He could not travel across so many of them and not accept it. It wasn't merely the people, short and tall, slender and fat, pale and dark, sometimes with different numbers of eyes or arms, sometimes nothing like men at all. It wasn't merely the changing number of suns and moons, the abrupt transitions from sweltering heat to icy cold as he stepped over an invisible line in the street. It wasn't merely the architecture, the sounds of the languages, the plants and the animals and the colors of the skies. Something lay beneath all of these surface changes, however unnerving they might be. Walking from world to world with a troop of guards, protecting the palanquin of the dying king, 
Cora sensed an irreducible otherness every place he went. Some perversion of the natural order brought these places together, and made it so he could travel to and within and across them, but it did not make him belong there. He came from another world, and these places were not his. Last services he came to see extended beyond merely speaking the necessary languages and knowing the safest path. Whether the guide understood this or not, he aided Corus by thinking on the counselor's behalf, making pragmatic decisions while Corus's mind gibbered and twitched under the realization of where he was. In the normal way, Corus would have never conceded such control to another, but he had no choice, a fact never far from his thoughts. There was no way to track how long they had been traveling, with night and day each seeming to follow the rules of the world they were in, not aligning with each other across boundaries. But they had to stop occasionally to rest, and using that to define a day, they had been traveling for just over a fortnight from the place of the cinnamon-skinned people when Koras asked last a question. He had observed, as they traveled, that the realms they were moving through were getting smaller, and now were nothing more than neighborhoods, areas of a few square blocks that held to a single reality before shifting to another one. They had passed through cities in other worlds, but now it seemed there was nothing but a city. This brought to mind the carpet Last had used as a map, and the things he had said then. These places, he said hesitantly to the guide. It was evening where they were, though it had been morning in the previous neighborhood. Last had bargained for a large shed they could sleep in for a time. Now the guide was on the front step, watching the city's life go by, and Quarus had joined them. They are all worlds. Yep, Last said. He was filling an oddly shaped pipe with a scarlet leaf Quarus no longer expected to recognize. Worlds which have come to an end. They're in the process of it. Instead of lighting the pipe, Last carefully dripped a little bit of water into it, then sucked on the stem with evident pleasure. Chorus thought of the myriad places they had traveled through. All of them? Last shrugged. Every world ends someday. Or maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? If a place doesn't come to an end, doesn't come here. But Driftwood is where worlds come to die. Driftwood. That is... This place. The whole place, from the crush right out to your home. Last gave him a sidelong look. People out on the edge usually deny it. You got enough of a world left that you can. But it's fading. Have you noticed that? Shrinking. Bits just vanish. People die, or vanish with the bits. Though maybe you're still having kids. Some worlds do, some don't. Your population shrinks with your world. One day, there's a place on the other side of you, where before there was only mist. They've had an apocalypse, too. Different than yours, probably, but the result is the same. There's a fragment that survives, fragment that didn't undying, and it comes here like all the rest of them. They fade like you do, as you fade when you move inward, because the worlds that lie crushward of you are doing the same thing. Eventually, you're just a little ghetto, hardly anything left. And when you reach the crush, hard of driftwood. Last bits vanish. Then there's nothing. The utter nihilism of the thought was unendurable. Chorus knew why the center of driftwood was called the crush. He felt that force bearing down on him, threatening to undo him entirely. 
Our prophecies, he forced himself to say, tell us otherwise. Our king will guide us through our tribulations and lead us to salvation in the paradise of the agate god. And then will begin the reign of the amethyst god and a new birth for the world. Unimpressed by this information, Last merely shrugged again. Could be you're right. I've been around Driftwood for a long time. I don't claim to be an expert on anybody's gods. Might be another world waiting for you all. But it'll be waiting for you on the other side of the crush. They checked the king's health regularly. It wasn't good, but he still lived, and that was reason enough for hope. But the people of Aoyang, not people at all, more like serpents with forked and dexterous tails, could not heal the king, and so they moved onward to Gran Nitar. The guards knew who they carried, as did the physician accompanying him. All had been bound to secrecy in the same manner as Haint. The criminal himself was, Chorus hoped, still waiting in the world of the cinnamon-skinned people to guide them home when they returned. But Quorus wondered how much good secrecy would do. Fully a score of people had now disobeyed the king's decree by order of the Counselor Paramount. They had traveled through other worlds and felt the truth of Driftwood for themselves. They were all heretics now, and what effect would this experience have on them? Save the king. Nothing else mattered. He would worry about other concerns after the king was well, and if he was executed for his own crimes, then so be it. Last guided them through the shreds in an arc that skirted the crush. Chorus had no desire to see it with his own eyes. They were attacked by some kind of large bird in one world. The guard's arrows bounced off it, and Last led them at a run over the boundary into the next shred. Someone killed one of the guards while they were resting, and stole everything off the body, including the clothes, without anyone else hearing. They learned from these lessons and adapted. Chorus, like all the counselors, had lived from his birth in the palace. He often wondered if his peers on the council would recognize him when he came back. At last, they came to Granitar. The people there, with skin like ink and eyes like stars, did not want anyone to accompany the king's palanquin into the ramshackle building that, even to Kores's eye, was obviously a makeshift replacement for a temple now lost, decorated with crude approximations of sculptures and murals. Last, seeing Chorus's distress, argued vehemently with the priests. In the end, the two of them were permitted within, while the guards and the physician remained outside. The priests carried the palanquin down a large, dark archway, through a series of three curtains in black, gray, and white, and into a courtyard open to the sky. There, one of their number drew back the palanquin's drapes, murmured over the king, turned to last, and said a short phrase. The guide snapped something back, receiving the same phrase in reply, and strode forward to the palanquin himself. Quares, his stomach in knots, saw the moment last shoulders slumped. I'm sorry, the guide said, his voice low and defeated. He's dead. Quares woke on a hard, narrow bed, with only one lamp casting a dim light. There was no blessed period of confusion. He knew instantly where he was and what had happened. The king was dead. He rolled over and found himself not alone. Last sat on a low stool nearby, 
hands working an intricate puzzle of interlocking wooden pieces. I'm guessing he was someone important, the guide said softly, not looking at Kores. Your king? Kores's words came thickly, from a mouth that no longer saw much point in speaking. The last of his line. Perhaps this was his punishment for heresy. But why did his world have to be punished alongside him? Who is supposed to lead you all to salvation? I remember. Two pieces slid out of the puzzle. Last laid them aside, the dark gloss of his fingernails gleaming in the lamplight. Can you choose another? Quarus's laugh was despairing. You don't choose a king. The gods do. His family was sacred. But they all died when the... The... His throat closed off. Horror enough to have lived through the end of the world. He could not tell that tale to this stranger while lying in a bed worlds away from home. Last sighs were still on the puzzle. Everything comes to an end someday. That's what this place is for. But it doesn't make the end hurt any less. The pieces came apart in his hands, without warning, and the puzzle dissolved into disconnected fragments. Tears blurred Quares's vision. What would this mean to his people? Suppose this man was right. Suppose that Driftwood was the ultimate truth of the end, and that their prophecies of salvation, paradise, and rebirth were a lie. They were still a lie his people would cling to. Without that to hold them together, they had nothing. Anarchy would tear them apart. I do have one possibility to offer you. Last's voice stopped the downward spiral of his thoughts. Sitting up on the edge of the bed, Corus brushed feebly at his hair, as if his fingers could mend the disarranged braids so easily. There was little hope in his heart, but still he said, Tell me. Two shreds Widdershins of here. There's a place called Rosfi. They can do this trick. It's like permanent shape-shifting. They can do it to other people. And once it's done, it's done, like the language magic we performed. Last's long fingers were manipulating the pieces once more. Quores watched them dance. None of your people know yet that your king is dead. The puzzle came back together again, as it had been before, and Quores realized what Last meant. He surged to his feet, torn between sickness and murderous fury. How dare you suggest such blasphemy to me! To prey on me when you know I am vulnerable! You calculated every step of this conversation, didn't you? Even down to that puzzle, an elegant illustration of your point. I am a heretic and a traitor to my king. I confess this beneath the foot of the agate god. But even I, fallen man that I am, would not presume to such a masquerade. Last was undisturbed by his outburst. It's up to you, he said easily, studying the reconstructed puzzle. Since there was no healing, the priests here have not taken their fee. You could pay it to the people in Rosfi instead. But this is your decision. Then I'll lead you home, as agreed. Finally, he looked up at Kores, meeting his eyes for the first time since the counselor awoke. I take my services very seriously. I'm not just a guide, not just a translator. 
I help people survive in driftwood. As much as I can, against the breakdown that eventually claims it all. So, I offer you what help I can. Whether or not you take it is up to you. He stood and set the puzzle on his vacated stool. When you're ready to come out, the priests will prepare a bath and food for you. I'll wait in the courtyard. From there, I'll take you wherever you want to go. Then he departed, leaving Chorus alone with the delicate puzzle of wood. A wave of noise surged up from the open plaza before the holy palace, as if the crowds assembled there spoke with one roaring voice. Gold and copper, studded with jewels, shone from the platform where the counselors stood in their vermilion robes. A guard stepped forward and lifted a spear, spiked on the end of it, brow still bearing the mark of his office, was the head of the former Counselor Paramount. No one knew the specifics of his crime, but his accomplices had been spared. All the guilt lay on Quares, and he had died a heretic's death. So it was, by order of the king. At the border with the tunnel world, Laft hefted his pack onto one shoulder. No one had paid him for his trip out to the edge. He'd come of his own will, to see what had happened. The man at his side did not wear the heavy, ornate robes of the king. They drew too much attention, and he was not accustomed to them anyway. "'I am damned for this,' the king said. Last shrugged. "'Maybe. Maybe not. But you have a chance to help your people, and that's got to count for something. You're the king now. Heresy will be what you say it is.' He grinned a brief flash of silver teeth. Maybe you'll be the last best heretic. The jest made Chorus flinch, but Last might be right. He smoothed his expression and gripped Last's hand. May all the gods smile on your journey. He stood at the edge of his world and watched until the guide vanished into the tunnels, his own words echoing in his mind. Whether their paradise lay beyond the crush or not, it could not ignore where they were. At least now his people would face Driftwood with their eyes open, guided by one who, if he did not understand it, was willing to learn. If heresy could lead to salvation, then he would find a way. Episode number 59 was On the Banks of the River of Heaven by Richard Parks, the story of the Celestial Otter's assistance to the separated lovers Kaibashi and Asagohime. On the blog, Bingo Rage said, Gorgeous reading, great story. It was nice to learn about the early days of Otter before the downward spiral of smoked fish and ugly divorce. On the board, Itans wrote, I really enjoyed this one. The folktale writing style was fun, and I enjoyed the encounter with a mythology I'm less familiar with. But probably the main thing for me was how entirely likable Otter was and how sympathetic Kaibashi and Asagohime were. I often complain, especially in pseudopod stories, on how I lost interest because of unsympathetic characters, and here it was the reverse. I liked Otter so much that I was never bothered by the slightly slow pacing. I just wanted to hang out with him more, and the ending was delightful. Come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and let us know what you think. 
Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Dante said, Forthwith that image vile of fraud appeared, his head and upper part exposed on land, but laid not on the shore his bestial tail.